riding a bike on the Ho Chi Minh Trail. We'll talk about that on this episode of the Mind Dog TV podcast. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the host or guest and should not be interpreted as statement of fact. Independent fact checking and corrections are encouraged. This episode is brought to you by Fundwise Capital. Fundwise Capital is a business lender matching platform. Avoid the mystery of one-sided deals and connect with Fundwise to get the very best funding you can qualify for fast. You can apply online in 60 seconds or less, and there's no effect to your credit to see how much you can get. It's easy. Use the funding for anything you need to start or grow your business. You did hear me correctly. I did say start or grow your business. If you don't have a business yet, but you got a solid business plan, they can help you get funding. Get the best funding you can qualify for. Their strategic lender matching platform searches through hundreds of lenders to find the very best possible option for your unique situation. They have hundreds of five-star reviews on Google, Trustpilot, and Facebook, and an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau. They provide unsecured lines of credit at 0% interest for 9 to 15 months. Unsecured term loans, loans based on income, short-term gap funding, and bridge loans. They work with real estate, startups like I already mentioned, franchises, restaurants, any kind of business, any kind of project. To get started, it's really easy. Just go to apply.funwise.com slash minddog. That's apply.funwise.com slash minddog. Get money for your business now. Apply. Money, 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 money. Funwise.com. Money, money, money. Is everybody ready for the mind dog to make it to the show? Let it rip. Welcome, my friends, to yet another episode of the Mind Dog TV podcast. I'm Matt Napo. Thanks for coming. It's great to have you here. As always, still something going on with the voice. I'm sorry about that. Uh, Vietnam. If you're a fan of the program, if you listen to the program, you know um, my situation with that. I don't think America ever really learned any of the lessons from Vietnam. That, that to the point where we take it to heart and really get it. And I think that's uh, really apparent in our uh, current discourse and a lot of our policies still today. Uh, We don't learn from the mistakes. And I think Vietnam was a huge mistake on the part of many different administrations. Uh, And we've talked about all that. My guest today has written a book about cycling essentially but based on his experiences in places like vietnam and china and japan and taiwan and portugal and so forth uh interesting stuff and this is why i wanted to talk to him because uh, of uh the ties to vietnam in his very first book uh and uh he's here tonight to talk about it. after military service patrick greenwood embarked on the 25 year career in uh a 25 year career in information technology uh field working in various roles in sales engineering support and design many of his inspirations for writing came via his business travels to places like vietnam china japan taiwan portugal uh, a true believer in listening to one's uh, own passion Patrick began writing in early 2020, uh, and based on several trips he made while cycling in various countries in his first novel, Sunrise in Saigon, 
Patrick draws upon several non-fictional events that happened in Vietnam, including the war in the US, with the U.S., the last days of Saigon falling, uh, and the uh, chaos in the U.S. Embassy. He's here to talk to us about the novel now. Ladies and gentlemen, please open your ears, open your minds, and help me welcome in Patrick Greenwood to the Mind Dog TV podcast. Patrick, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Mind Dog. Great to see you. It's a, it's a pleasure to have you here. Uh, so I, I have to, I'm going to start off with, with, with uh, just being a, a wise ass to you. Um, <laughs> I think you made a mistake in, uh, listen, three books is fine. Uh, mm -hmm. I get I, I get the idea about three books, but I don't think you should let people know that there's two more books. You know why? Mm -hmm. Because they know the first one does, has a, a, a un, not necessarily a happy ending. They want to pick up the book and think when I get to it, there's going to be a happy ending. And then there's two, they know there's two more books, so there can't be a happy ending there. <laughs> I'm giving something away there. No so, worries. I think that's part of, because uh, I talk to a lot of authors who do like a series, and I love the idea of, because as as some of uh, somebody who's a creator at the end of the process i'm sad i don't want it to be over i want it to keep going and i know as a reader yes at the end of a book i'm sad i don't want it to be sometimes if it's a good book i want it to keep going movies same thing so i i appreciate that but i don't want to let people know that, that that they can expect it already before they even bought the ticket for the first movie <laughs> absolutely, yeah, absolutely. No, you're you're right. You're spot on. There's there's some goodness to it. Uh, it is a, actually a series of seven books. Um, seven and the uh, yeah, seven total. And uh, but the first one obviously is very important to set the stage and direction, and obviously the the main character as well. So now you started writing in 2020, and you've uh, have you already completed three books? Uh, five actually. Five. <laughs> Yes, I'm a little jealous. <laughs> well, you gotta, uh, when, during COVID, everybody was at home. You either worked or you wrote. So, you know, I decided to just pick up writing more. You know, obviously, I mean, to work at home and being remote uh, and I, needed a break from work. So I decided, you know, kind of write up a little bit. And I just kept writing. I had a doctor on last week who he wrote his first book. It's a, a first fiction novel, and it took him 12 years. And so I'm sure when he he'll be a little jealous hearing that, too. Um <laughs> So, yeah, so you were – now, this is a little interesting. In, in your bio, mm -hmm. it says sales, engineering, and support and design. Those are all different, very different fields. And generally, none of those teams get along with sales and engineering. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, tell me a little bit about your past in the IT before we get into the book and your experiences for, in various – roles within that it, it seems like you had to re-educate yourself a lot in life constantly uh, so i was in cybersecurity for almost 25 years so i was in sales i was engineering i was in product i was in marketing uh, i moved around very fluidly I worked you know with different companies you know cisco ibm some of the bigger tech companies as well but i really became kind of a hybrid i was a salesperson with a technical background so i usually end up getting stuck doing both jobs so I would take a job going, okay, I'm going to be a sales guy and suddenly go, oh yeah, but we didn't hire you an engineer. So you're going to be both. And then it suddenly became, you're the sales guy, the engineer, and you're the marketing guy. And then yeah. also, by the way, you're the channel guy. So I'm making four jobs going, okay, enough. <laughs> Time to move on. Did you say I need four paychecks? Exactly. No, it didn't work like that. No, I wish it would have been that way, but no, no. No, I was I was a value to them by doing four different jobs. And uh, I did that for almost 25 years. And uh, I covered a lot of the parts of the world. Uh, especially here in U.S., of course, Asia Pacific as well, a little bit of Europe. Uh, traveled an awful lot, uh, way too much, uh, okay. way too much trouble. Now, uh, w during that time you were having a career, uh, 
was writing on your mind was that was it something you always wanted to do and you were somehow uh, too busy to do what you really wanted to do? So I, I'm dyslexic. And so I grew up being dyslexic since I was very little. So I always had my writing was always being, you know, at school, making fun of and people always gaffing at my work and my teachers always went, Jesus, you may want to be an actor, you know, don't, don't bother being anything else. But I really have uh, really picked up writing very strongly uh, around 2000, 2001, uh, just started writing for people. And people would ask me to write their blogs uh, and when the internet was starting to really boom. And then I started writing more cybersecurity work for people uh, around 2012 and 13. And because I had the knowledge in my head, they just wanted me to kind of say, hey, can you explain how this hack happened? Tell us how the Russians broke the bank, right? And I would know how, to, how that worked and I would write about it. And it really got serious right around 2017 where more and more people on the sidelines were saying, look, can you kind of write this white paper for us or can you write this proposal? Sure, so I write it on weekends. But I realized the more I write, the better I started writing. So my dyslexia sort of almost went away because I just kept practicing writing and writing. And eventually I overcame it. And then when I decided to say, okay, I've got this story in my head from 2010, 2012 in Vietnam. I never sat down and wrote about it. I'm tired of COVIDism. So I decided to just jam it out and start writing it. Wow. Um, I'm dyslexic too. And it's a, it's a very frustrating thing. Uh, mine hasn't lessened. I write a lot, but... Uh, it doesn't it doesn't lessen the dyslexia at all I, and i i think i'm writing well and I, then i look up and it's like wow or somebody reads your stuff and goes oh my god where's the all, red all, pen? all the time and even on twitter where it's limited to 144 characters people i get often get comments like do you even read what you what you're posting here as I thought I did. <laughs> yeah. Thank God for spell checking, grammar checking online. But even that, they don't get it right all the time either. So right. Um, so tell me when when uh, the first time you went to Vietnam was that during was it during the military your military oh, yeah. service or was it during business business time way after? So I was in the military in the eighties and I got out in eighty eight from the Marine Corps. I served honorably here at uh, Camp Pendleton, California. Um, and after 1988, when I got out, I got into technology. Around 2012, I made my first trip to Vietnam. Uh, the intention really was cycling. I've always wanted to go. So I'm a generation very similar to you. I grew up in the 60s and 70s, and I remember the fall of Saigon in 75. And I was always intrigued. And you were dead on in your introduction. We do not understand the Vietnam War. We're still making the same mistakes 50 years later. We don't understand the country. But that intrigued me when I was 11. And I thought, God, you know, one day I'm going to become old enough and grown up enough to say, I've got to make that trip. I've got to one day just say, go do it. And I did it in 2012. And I kind of did it more for cycling um, and also some other other things as well that I kind of describe in the book. Now, the book is a fictional account of, of, of the trip, but there's a lot of nonfiction influence uh, in the book as well. But it okay. did talk about wanting finally to make that journey to go to Vietnam. Yeah. Well, you, they say write about what you know, uh, and, and I don't know if that's always a, a the, you know, a <laughs> rule you have to live by, but they say that, so it's a yeah. cliche. Um, interesting. Now, because uh, you say you you were you you remember the fall of Vietnam. You were uh, like eleven years 11, old when that. Was, yeah, about eleven when they when Saigon fell in seventy five. I remember vividly hearing it on the radio and going, "Oh wow, Saigon finally fell after ten years." and People don't realize that the war started in the 30s, you know, with the Japanese and the French, then us and everybody else, then the Chinese. And yeah, go so back to 1850, if you really yeah, even <laughs> yeah go back even further. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what is remarkable to me, and I will, I'll get to the cycling part in a second, but just now, just 
Vietnam, mm-hmm. the country, the people. Yes. Well, I grew up in the 60s. It was like, you know, lots of uh, bigotry, lots of hatred to the, you know, it was, you know, f- yellow people on the other side of the world who were our enemy, who, who wanted to somehow spread communism around the globe to come and get me right. in Long Island, New York. <laughs> Uh, what I found about the Vietnamese people, and this is, I don't think there's another nation, another group of people in the world who who have this. And, I, and maybe a, it's a false idolization of them, but the forgiveness in their hearts, because here you go, this imperialist, gigantic country is coming, meddling in their affairs on one side or the other. You have the other Chinese and Russian interests, all everybody's in there, and they don't hold a grudge against anybody. No, and, and that's so uncommon and so uh, it, it's a great lesson to be learned for everybody, but we can't, we don't even acknowledge that we don't even talk about it yeah. i've had people i deal with in the business world from vietnam come over and i, I how do you not hate me <laughs> knowing that two million vietnamese people died at the hands of bombing from my country that was for nothing i mean it was a mistake um you know we can talk about blame and all that stuff <laughs> but it was a mistake and we yeah. I, I feel terrible that we, it happened and they don't hold any grudge against me. Did, did that strike you when you first went there? Did you? Was that like something you felt? The moment I landed in, in Saigon or Ho Chi Minh City, they call it now, but I landed in Saigon, as soon as I got out of the airport in the National Gallery and everybody's wanting to take a picture with me, it was like, <laughs> okay, great. And then the cab person was like cleaning the seat and everything and getting the hotel. They all lined up at the hotel and said, welcome. Uh, and from the moment I left, you know, nine days later, it, it just it wasn't what people think. And that's what intrigued me to wanting to go and write eventually a book because it was so fascinating to say I finally made it. I remember sitting having a coffee at the Intercontinental Hotel, <laughs> which is where all the CIA used to hang out, I guess, back in the 60s. But to sit there and go, well, this is where they wrote The Quiet American. You know, yeah. this is where Graham Greene wrote his book. And you're like, you're looking around going, well, there's the courtyard. There's this. There's that. Oh, there's CNN. And you're like, this is like so surreal. And then the people were so wonderful. And they were all very friendly. Everyone kind of came up and said, hey, you know, where are you from? And then they're incredible. But I, I do meet a lot of Vietnamese that have come to America since my time when I was younger, especially in college. And in the Northern Virginia area, there was a lot of Vietnamese refugees that came there. And they were just like, they just want to be educated. They want to be in a place of safety. And the good thing was there was a lot of people after the war that did embrace the Vietnamese people and, and found a way to bring them into their hearts and their homes. And yes, there was a lot of racism, you know, as well. Yeah. Um, so uh, do you have any um, inkling to why, why they have this um, ability to forgive? Because, listen, if America lost a war or, or was involved in a war where two million Americans died, mm-hmm. we'd be holding a grudge for hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, it's a cultural thing. But do you, do you have any insight into where I know the Buddhism plays in, into yes. a lot, but. Uh, beyond that, do you have any insight into where Buddhism. that forgiveness comes from? You nailed it. Buddhism. It's yeah. they're religious and spirit. They are extremely spiritual. And even the Christian community and the Catholic community in Vietnam is extremely very, very synced and together. But the best way to describe and I know I, I know a lot of people don't understand, you know, who Ho Chi Minh was, but when, when Ho Chi Minh sort of ran the place, there was a side of it in which was like there was an element of destruction of what he did. But there was another side of it which when the war ended in seventy five, it was a unification. We always looked at it as oh, it's the end of the war and we're you know pushing helicopters off the carriers. But to them, it was a unification. It was like 
the war actually did end. Yeah. And if you think about a modern day time where you have Iraq and you have Iran and you've got Syria and you've got, you know, Libya, those things have never ended. Afghanistan never really ended, even after 20 years. Yeah. So the idea of having it end was a way of them saying, we're now going to unify. You may not like the whole unified party for the next two to three years, but we're going to unify. And to see the country today, industrialists, educated, and of course they had their corrupt, like everybody else, problems. But you do see a, a way of them saying they've moved on. They, they look forward, not backwards. But they've had to do that a lot, to your point, since like the 1850s. They've had to do that a lot. Yeah, yeah, they have. Maybe that has something to do with it in, in just knowing the whole history of, of yep. for some reason. Now, I, it's a beautiful place, right? It is gorgeous. <laughs> yeah. Uh, somebody keeps offering to take me there. And it's just like the flight around the world is intimidating to me. It's like too far, too far for me. But uh, maybe I maybe I should. It's worth, uh, the, so, trip. It's worth the trip. It, it is worth the trip. Yeah. Um so your first time there, uh, now you were a cyclist be before you ever went there. You had you had been doing it for years and years? Actually, no. I really started in 2010, and that was also a, kind of the part of the book as well, is that the, the main character, Jack Kendall, uh, you know, very much took up cycling to improve his health. I mean, he really was like on the downside of life. I mean, he was in his 50s. He was overweight, diabetic, you know, all the real things that happened in life. And cycling was really kind of his way of saying, I've got to turn my life around. I've got to kind of go left and right. And then the cycling kind of led to, wait a minute, I've always wanted to cycle in Vietnam, so why not go? So Jack kind of put the whole thing together and went over there. But cycling really became his balance in life. And part of the book talks about what he saw when he was cycling. You know, he saw the good and he saw the bad. And what inspired him to do things like invest in a water company and provide clean water for kids was because he was cycling and looked down and kids had no teeth or their teeth were black because they were drinking sugar. So those things really inspired him to realize that there was a better life for him and cycling became kind of that engine for that. Uh, uh, well, I think you, you've already revealed something to me here. Because usually <laughs> almost with every author who, I, especially if they're writing uh, fictional novels, mm -hmm. I, I like to ask them how much of the protagonist <laughs> is them. It seems like uh, Jack Kendall is probably 75% you. <laughs> no, I can't say because there is a love interest in the story as well. Um, right. So I can't. Obviously, there is some fiction there, um, yeah. but it, there is there is pieces of inspiring events. Yes, but a lot of it is story in order to make it more readable uh, and right. obviously make it a little bit more exciting. Uh, there, there's definitely definitely some fiction to it. Okay, so the cycling. Did you get into it for health reasons, or what? What inspired you to get onto on oh, a bicycle? It was definitely health. Uh, I was very similar to the main character. You know, definitely had uh, you know traveling too much and being in the sales and getting up to almost two hundred eighty pounds at the time. And uh, doctors telling you, you know, guess what? Your your tick is punched if you don't do this. And uh, got into cycling as a way of getting healthy, and that just inspired me to say, well, God, you know, there's a lot of people needing to go do that. So Why cycling? Why not walking, running, swimming? <laughs> what 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 got you to say, I'm going to go to the bike shop? Uh, well, it really was. You know, because when you see people cycling, 90% of them are thin. And you're going, okay, I got to be that thin. <laughs> I got to be like that guy in the shorts. That's so a I good point. I've never seen a fat guy on a bike. No, rarely or, or very rarely do. Yep. I can't think of one. That's a good point. <laughs> but I would say the same of runners, too. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's just curious because, you know, I've been there, but I go to the gym. I, you know, we, I guess we all have our own things, but, but cycling would, and you know, I was thinking about this today, knowing you were going to be on the program. I lived 
Mike, and I'm sure you know this too, growing up in the 60s, yep. uh, my childhood, I mean, my, my bike was everything. My bike, my, my life was based around my bike growing yep. up. And I put thousands of miles on my bike. Um, so when you went, did, did you get advice on like what kind of bike to buy and how to get into cycling and all that stuff? And, and yeah, tell, there was tell a, me there's what. a pro shop here where I, I live in Carlsbad, California. So there was a pro shop downtown I went to and, and they really kind of measured you up correctly, your, your height and weight and everything. And to be honest with you, the, the bike owner kind of laughed for a while going, are you sure you really want to do this, man? You know, because <laughs> I was really large at the time, but it, I definitely got some good advice and that inspired a lot of the character in the book for Jack was because there was places that he could not get up the hill without passing out or he couldn't go downhill without getting dizzy. So there was a lot of that in the book. But yeah, I, I did get some good advice on what kind of bike to ride and, you know, and, and safety reasons as well. It wasn't that complicated, by the way, in the sixties and seventies. You just, you, I want a banana, a banana seat bike with 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 a sissy bar on it. Uh, you know, uh, it wasn't it wasn't as complicated as it now. No, I very... I can't just go to the store and buy a bike and get into cycling, can I? <laughs> no, no, it's all titanium and it's got more gears than you can count and all the shifting stuff. So yeah, no, it's a little bit different than our our Schwins from the seventies. So teach me a little something. What kind? What kind of bike uh, is there? A different bike that you would take to go to vietnam than you ride in california yeah actually i actually use the same bike it's a chevelle os5 it's all titanium i have taken it as you can see on my wall i've got multiple these uh, taiwan china um that actually is a seattle or no it's vancouver and then over here i've got one from italy as well so i've actually take the bike apart put it in a bag you know wrap it around really tight put it on the plane with me and, and you know on the other side i just assemble it and start cycling Wow. Uh, so, uh, would you be? Would you consider yourself like a, a, an expert cyclist now, <laughs> like a professional? Cyclist? I wouldn't say professional, but I, I definitely write well, and uh, I've written in those medals on the wall over here. You can see those are actually a lot of recycling medals from different races that I've been involved in as well. So, once I took on cycling, it became you know part of me. It obviously was something that's in my my DNA now. Um, but yes, I've, I've taken overseas and I've taken it into actual races as well. Okay, I'm going to show the book here while, while we have a moment here. We'll find a book. Here it is. Uh, it's called Sunrise in Saigon. Now, um, the title, yes. I'm imagining, because all, all the pictures I've seen, all the stuff, that it, it literally inspired by the, the beauty of the country at sunrise. Were you riding, uh, riding up early, like up riding in the, it, as the sun was coming up? No, actually, the, 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 the shot you're seeing right here, what inspired it was really was the main character, Jack, um, and his love interest uh, that he, one of the reasons he went to Vietnam was to meet this woman, uh, Lynn No, uh, and Lynn was considerably younger than him, um, but he wanted an opportunity in life to meet her. Um, this is their first morning together that they had. Uh, this was the shot from their room together that they promised each other that one day they would see the sunrise again. The significance of the river, that's actually the Saigon River that you're seeing there, um, is that it really becomes a very important, uh, I wouldn't say metaphor, but it becomes a very important part of the story is that no matter how much they loved each other, how much they thought they could have a life together, they realized there was always going to be a river between them. And wow. that really was the core of the story was, you know, Jack's journey. He, he accomplished so much by going there and seeing things and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, he also knew that he, there was no way he would ever be with Lynn. Um, and then part of the transformation in life is to not only get his life in order, but also at the end, it does kind of have a very good beginning to the next book, uh, which is a codename Dragon Vault that's coming out uh, later next year. Um, there is some continuum 
to to the story as well. But this really this this shot is kind of more symbolic to their relationship, um, but obviously showing the beauty of the country as well. Right. I got to ask because I'm confused. Uh, <laughs> to me, if I if I had a deep love like that, mm-hmm. there's nothing. There's no reason. Nothing in, on, on earth is going to stop me from being with the woman I love if she wants to be with me. Mm-hmm. Why do they know? I, may, I'm, are we giving away too much if you answer a this? A little question? bit. You got, you, 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 that's, that's, a, that's, the, that's a good part of the story is the journey of each other and then the separation of each other and their private lives and what happens to their lives. Uh, and then how the both curiosity the- about why they can't be together, though. I mean, like in some cases, it, and and lot, lots of stories that are about that, like Romeo and Juliet. There, that's explained why they can't be together. You know, um, I'm curious, curious, but but if, I don't want you to reveal anything no, no. that gives away the way. A little bit, obviously, culture. Uh, they're both married. Uh, obviously, oh. and, and they both have children. Um, they oh. both have a life. Um, oh. So there's some parallels that go on. But but the, the nice thing about the storyline is that, and I, I think the, right, the readers will get it, is that when you really kind of see this relationship, how it came and then it separated out, that one part of the relationship tends to go away further than the other. Gotcha. And it, then you got to figure out, well, one wants it to work, the other one doesn't, the other one thinks it can work. But then it goes to struggle for almost almost eight years. Uh, right. That they could not really find a bridge, and and at the end, it actually turned out to be a good thing, that for both of them. Now, I'm curious. Uh, I'm, I'm always curious with authors because, uh, like, I am with musicians and comedians and and filmmakers. I talk about this because the creative process, the, it, it it's not something that is you can t- you can't teach it. People develop their own create creative process, their own way about coming to creation. Mm-hmm. And it, but it's curious to me because I'm always trying to uh, examine my own creativity and where it mm-hmm. comes from and how I apply it and how I know when is the best time to apply it. So let's let's go there a little bit with, sure. with you now. With did the story come to you and you start writing, or did you have the whole story kind of thought out or, or, or planned out before you started writing, or are you one of these guys who? just starts with a blank piece of page, uh, paper and starts ty- or your computer screen and starts typing away and lets the word take you into the story. Blank paper. Really? Ouch. Behind me. Uh, pen in hand during COVID. Long uh, hand? Yeah. Long hand out. Most of it did a big outline, spent two weeks on an outline. Then after the outline was done, I said, okay, let's pound in front of the computer, jumped in front of it and just started writing. And what I what I did originally in the outline, that's a great question, is that during the outline was really getting the character names figured out. Right. Who, who's Lynn, who's Tin, who's everybody else. So once you figure that out, then you're really just pounding it out. Now, many, a lot of it was inspired by true events, but how the true events evolved into a fictional story was what made it a story. If I just went a non-fictional memoir, it'd be boring and you'd be like, really? That's what happened? <laughs> you know, no one would care. But to make it a fictional story was really where the creativity came. And that's where you just really start writing raw. You just write it out. You don't worry about the editing or punctuation and grammar, stuff like that. You just write it out. So I wrote out the first 90,000 words, probably in a less than probably three months. And then I took a break for about two weeks. And then I doubled back and started doing some preview editing and, and started moving things around. But most of the, most of the original draft did stay. Uh, obviously, dyslexia kicked in, you know, in a great way. So I had to go undo that. But by by the time I hit the six month mark, I already had the book out. Uh, and obviously, my publisher Austin McCauley signed me. 
uh, and I was very happy when I, I really didn't have to query them too much. Um, they came back and said, we love this. We're going to go ahead and you know sign a contract with you. So my publisher, I, I landed within six months after submitting the, the content to them. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm jealous again, and I'm certain lots of authors hearing that want to kill you right now. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> um, first of all, I have to correct you on, on one thing. There's no such thing as a nonfiction memoir. <laughs> memoirs I, I have a uh my my memoir and it's not published yet it's called a uh partially uh fictional uh, <laughs> partially partially fictional, fictional. <laughs> because even if we uh, if we, even if we intend to have it completely true memories and and some of a lot lots of the events are not fact checkable and you can't you can't really check and different memories you know i think I'm telling the true story, and uh, my friend is who was there has a completely different version of it. Yes. <laughs> and like, I know, I know I'm right, but he knows he's right too. <laughs> yeah, no, I, 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 I commend people that can do memoirs, but the, you know, when you do a nonfiction and you're having to do really go back and fact check, and you have to find people, like you said, find people to say, "Hey, man, were we really in the bar at 2 a.m.?" Yeah. They're yeah. like, "No, dude, it was like 10 o'clock," you know, right. and and that really kind of hoses up the creativity. But when you can take a nonfictional component and add fiction to it you can go anywhere you want which is really good right so when you talk about uh real life events are you talking about the things in the history of vietnam or are you talking about personal events in your life in jack kendall's life that match up <laughs> but the, a blend because it did start with obviously the fall of saigon and and jack hearing that on the radio when he was 11 and then a little bit of his military service when he was stationed overseas in the 80s and so on. But it really kind of picked up as Jack was really in very poor health. Uh, and then obviously he was looking down upon himself to say, I, I can't go on like this. My life is, you know. And so I think that part is a little little bit of nonfiction to it. But the the, the journey and the, and the drive to want to go there was was really kind of more made up in the story. I mean, the whole reasoning of why he went and why he wanted to go and and more importantly, what was he hoping to get out of it? Because he did make three trips to, to Vietnam between 2012 and 2016, and each trip had a different purpose. But each thing he did there, whether it was helping somebody or, you know, helping kids with clean water, whatever it was, his purpose in life started going up. In a way in which you're like, oh, wow. So there is there is better hope in the world. Um, and then, of course, when everything kind of came crashing down, instead of him going into panic isolation, he just said, you know what? Okay. Another day, another dollar, move on. And and it kind of reshaped his life. So he realized that in the course of three years, instead of him realizing he was looking down at a coffin someday, he now saw hope in life. So the book is really kind of an inspiration that there is hope to see a better day. And that's kind of where the sunrise you know, also has some symbolism too. Very cool. Very cool stuff. Now you, you're touching on things that I like to talk about. Mm -hmm. um, purpose, mm -hmm. ideas about uh, who we are, why we are, uh, all that stuff. To me, it's something, another thing I struggle with because at sometimes I feel like it's discoverable. And sometimes I feel like it's a hopeless pursuit in trying to figure out life's purpose. Were you was, was the idea of purpose, life's purpose, and a meaning to life something that you always uh, thought about, or did that come about after your retirement and when you started uh, writing and, and taking on this uh, this work? 
Great question. So yeah, I did get involved in a water company in Vietnam at the time. I, I became an investor to help create clean water. Um, I did take the proceeds to help provide funding for Catholic nuns in Vietnam um, because many of them were, were suffering financially as well. Um, so I always had a, a kind of a giving heart. I've always had kind of wanting to do better by others and so on. Uh, recently, I started another venture where I'm providing the proceeds of the book, by the way, are going to Helmets for Kids in Vietnam. So proceeds of both that and my uh, coffee sales as well will be going to help support Helmets for Kids. Um, this has been a charity that started by President Bill Clinton in 2000, uh, and it's made almost a million helmets since 2000, and it distributed them in Vietnam and Laos and Thailand and India. So the proceeds of this project is going to help uh, provide um, you know funding to that charity as well. Well, let's come back. We'll come back to the helmets, and we'll come back to the coffee in a minute. Um, <laughs> uh, so uh, the idea, do you, did you ever think of why this, you know, I, I understand you have a good heart and you have lots of empathy and this is what drives you to do this. But do you, does, do you ever spend time figuring out why you are driven to be that kind of person? And because some people are just not, people ask me all the time, because I, I do things and I sometimes I, I feel like I'm virtual signaling, so I don't like to get, you know, get into the details of all that stuff. But People ask me why. Why do you do that? And, and some people are like it must be like a community community or service board ordered community service or something. Mm -hmm. uh, but what is, what is it that drives you to be that kind of person? Do you do you ever think about that? Oh, actually, a lot of the motivation was, and this is the other side of the story, is where Jack came from. When Jack was overweight and bad health, and he was in technology, and it was a doggy dog world, he saw the worst side of humanity being in that space. And when I was in that space for so many years, you know, there were some good things. Obviously, you get paid very well, um, obviously, being in tech. But at the same time, you also see the, the worst side in people. And so I am very blessed, very happy for the things that I have in life. I'm very happy. I have a wonderful wife uh, with me here in Carlsbad, California, Jenny. And I have two wonderful children who are up and married. And I'm very blessed to have what I have in life. And for me, I've always been blessed, but I may not have recognized it until maybe the last 10 or 12 years. And Sometimes you, and that was a real part of going to Vietnam was cycling and looking down at, looking down off your bike and going, they have nothing, not even their shoes, not even water. They're drinking sugar. They're chewing sugar. Right. And you just realize, wow, I mean, I go home to a 401k and a mortgage and retirement plans and, and you just feel compelled to say as a human being, I want to be able to try to do right as much as I can. And that's what really has kind of compelled me the last 10 to 12 years to really get involved in doing, you know, these types of projects. Right. I just want to, for anybody who's listening, um, just the, the experience of gratitude, what you just talked about, about uh, realizing how blessed you are. Because a lot of us, you know, a lot of people get caught up in the idea that, I don't know, working for somebody else and, and, do, and getting caught up in making a, a living, a nine to five living, we take for granted the roof over our heads, the food on the table, the oh, the little things in life that we we think, uh, you know, we want more. We want more than that. But we're never, we never take a moment to say, there are people who would die for, for the luxury I have. To, this room right now is a palace to yeah. somebody somewhere. Uh, so I think that's an important, and I think that you seeing that and and taking steps to, uh, try to make the world a better place while you're here. I think God bless you and and good work. Um, so proud to know you. Um, helmets. Um, 
when I was a kid, and you know, there's, there were there were no helmets. I, I when I put thousands of miles on my bike when I was a kid, no helmets. Mm-hmm. Um, I never saw, and I'd fallen off a bike. I crashed into a truck. Mm-hmm. I never saw anybody with head injuries. Now, I'm not saying that that, <laughs> that people should not wear helmets, but mm-hmm. I is it really that big a risk? <laughs> yes, it is. Yes. Well, we're going because I never saw anybody get a head injury on a bicycle ever in my life. Right, but remember the Schwinn had how many gears? One point five, maybe. I mean, <laughs> I, I, no, I, used to put the little baseball cards on her spokes so we can hear the da da da. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Absolutely. So that's right all late, that. that was all speed latency problems. But now because bikes are t- you know twenty gears and they're lighter and they're faster, and you've got obviously people on the road. I mean, you and I grew up. It was riding to the park and back in Baskin Robbins with a cone in her hand. Yeah. Now people are on the road with cars, with trucks, and people aren't paying attention. They're on their phones. They're doing their thing, right? They're yelling at their kids. They're eating in and out burger while they're driving. And these bikes are thinking they're part of the road. And until bike lanes were first put in, you know, in the 2000s, there was a lot of contention for the road, and there still is today. And over there, it's a lot different. There you have a city of 13 million people in Ho Chi Minh City, 8 million scooters. Right. And now you have a half a million cars and you got trucks. Then the roads are not built for that. They're built from like they were built in the 50s. So yeah. these kids are having to get up in the morning and go up against all these scooters and bikes and carts and rickshaws. And and, and tragically, there, there, there's been a lot of challenges and fatalities. All right. You sold me. You sold me on that the helmet idea because I, I see it when we're, as you're describing it there. I live in a. Um, pretty rural part of Long Island, New York, very far from New York City, and it's a hill on the North Shore, and there are roads here where there are lots of bike. Bikers love to take the trails up here, but there's no bike lanes for them, and they are, they are riding those uh, supersonic bikes and going uphill and downhill, things I could never do, and sometimes when there's 20 or 30 of them in a pack, it gets to be a traffic hazard. The, the cars going both ways don't know what to do and all that stuff. I could see that somebody could get very badly injured. So you sold me on the helmet idea. But I will still say, if I'm in the park alone and not around that traffic, I'm not wearing a helmet. Uh, if I, I just see myself as a little kid. I'm not riding a bike in the park anyway. What am I talking about? Well, but 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 think about the latest rendition of bikes, the electric bikes, which now have taken storm in our country. And there's tons of electric bikes that there's 16 year old kids riding in traffic now, like a car. And some are on their phones, and some have a helmet, some don't. And in some states, they are coming up with laws finally to say, if you're going to be on the road, you have to have a license. And if you're going to be a 16-year-old, have a helmet, don't have your phone on. And hopefully local communities will start investing it. But it is important to know that the helmet does save lives. And okay. it's a simple, simple thing as that. You, you, you convinced me. And uh, it wasn't like a, a hard sell. But <laughs> it's just, to, I, I'm not one of these people who, who uh, you know, because there were, back when motorcycle helmets were a big thing, there were people who were adamantly, emotionally attached to no helmets. Like, I can't, we can't have that. And like, that's insane. Gary um, Busey, remember Gary Busey when Gary wiped out years ago and he was like, yes. not wearing helmets? Like, I know you're famous, but your head is just like mine. Why yeah. not wear a helmet? But I guess he didn't want to. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Gary's a Gary's a trip. Um, <laughs> yes, he is. <laughs> so yeah, I, I I definitely agree with that. Now wearing the helmets, mm-hmm. uh, you, you wear it when you're racing, right? I, you wear a helmet all the time. Is it comfortable? Is it, I mean, can and it doesn't 
it doesn't cover your face, right? It just covers the top of your head like a like a half a foot. Part of your head as well, and you wear a hat to keep your hair kind of pushed down so it doesn't get in your face. I also wear a visor in case it rains uh, as well. But I've been wearing a helmet since since day one. Right now, uh, it's a solitary exercise, isn't it? I mean, you're alone, kind of alone, and uh, you're not sharing the moment with somebody. Else. You're not talking, you're not having conversations or any of that stuff when you when you're actively cycling, right? Oh, no, I take my wife and I, my wife, Jenny, and I cycle together. And, and but she's really come up in the last few years of riding as well. So she'll ride with me. Now, granted, I ride 10 times faster than her. So I ride on Saturdays by myself to sort of get my speed out. And then we ride together on Sundays where I kind of go more her speed. But she's turned into a wonderful cyclist. Absolutely. Wow. That's very cool. Um, so, and racing, uh, that's something like you train for, like yeah. you have um, different courses and, and that kind of, I'm just envisioning like um, like a golfer will check out a golf course and, and see how it's different. Like the yeah. roads roads and, and, and courses for races are always different, right? So yeah. do, you, do you go and scout the territory? Is Sometimes. that what you Sometimes. Yeah. So the Jersey over here actually is a Seattle to Vancouver, Washington race. That was 212 miles over two days. So I obviously didn't go to Seattle and Vancouver to t- train. I trained down here in Southern California, but getting used to 200 miles in two days is it does take a lot of training. I mean, obviously you've got to wear the, you know, the padding on your butt, you know, type of shorts. So you feel it, but you learn to do bike yoga. You learn to drink a lot of fluid and, and, chew on the little salt tablets as well so you don't dehydrate but you do have to train and that's one thing i really encourage people to get into biking if you're doing it just to go to the park and hang out and go to the beach you know have at it but if you really are going to race you do need to train and you and you got to get used to the pain you got to get used to the fact that you're going to stiffen up and you know your neck's going to need to do this a couple of times and you're also going to get dehydrated so you definitely need to fuel up but racing is great the long races are fun after 200 miles you're like you don't even want to look at your bike for half an hour well, I'm I'm happy to hear that you experience pain, uh, because I I always feel like I'm odd when whenever I do things like physically, uh, I'm always like there's something wrong with me. Uh, nobody else is having these kind of pains, so it's good. I'm glad to hear oh, yeah. being honest about it. I think you know a lot of a lot of guys, especially, don't show it. They don't want to show the mm-hmm. other guys that they're they're hurting. Me, I'm like the biggest wimp ever. It's like, oh my god, I've got a cramp on me. <laughs> my legs are dead. My head's hurting. Leave me alone for a couple of days. Oh, oh, sure, especially after racing, of course. And hills, hills yes. kill me. I mean, even walking hills will kill me. I, and, <laughs> in my forties, um, early forties, my my girlfriend did not come home from work, uh, and uh, my car was in the shop or something. So I decided to take my bike to work, which is twenty five miles from from where I live and up through hill territory. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I in my forties, I thought, oh, no problem. And I hadn't ridden a bike since I was mm-hmm. a kid. And by the time I got to the hills on the expressway. I had to get off the bike and walk the bike up there, <laughs> and even that was a lot, was painful. So I felt like ridiculous. Hills are they'll get you. Hills are the cyclist devil. Yes, yes they are. <laughs> but like they said, it's only hill get over it, right? So you just got to get over it and just get there. But I've had to get off the bike and walk it up the hill a few times. Absolutely. Right. Who's the audience for your book? Is it because it's if it's a at, it sounds like at the core it's it's a love story definitely love story it seems like a, a chick flick 
book. <laughs> it could be a chick flick. It definitely has a chick flick and a male chi- male male book as well. I, I think that the adults, 25 and over, I think a lot of veterans have asked to read the book. So some I've given some early uh, versions of it to some Vietnam veterans to look. They were very happy how I represented the Vietnamese people. I've given it to different reading groups that are that are from Vietnam that have really appreciated how my outlook on how Vietnamese people were and how I portrayed them in the book as well. Uh, I think that the idea that anybody wants suspense, it's got a lot of international intrigue. And of course, the hook at the end talks about a little bit of the next series, um, which gets a lot more into cybersecurity and, and a lot more Bitcoin hacking as well. But it does have a, it does have a lot of things for everyone. I think it's going to be well received. Very cool. Uh, do you have a big uh, Vietnamese community near Carlsbad or, or in that area in California? Yeah, so uh, Carlsbad is right near Camp Pendleton, and it's about 35, 40 minutes away from Little Saigon up in Orange County. So we do have a large Vietnamese community, uh, and I have uh, reached out to a lot of them. They've all said, hey, can we get an early release of the book? We'd love to read it. And the ones that have read it came back going, you got it right. Wow. You actually saw us for what we are. It's like, wow. yeah, I mean, it was that's part of going there and, and meeting people and realizing, yeah, this is, uh, like you said, a lot of forgiveness. A lot of yeah. yep. Be- a beautiful people. Even and uh, the even the warriors who, especially the warriors, I should say, who were uh, involved in the war and passionate about winning it for the North, and uh, were fighting the Americans with everything they had. They had respect for a, a kind of respect for the enemy that they don't teach, uh, you know, our military at all to to kind of. It's almost like an ancient um, belief in, in the noble no, nobility of the warrior and that e- even your enemy deserves respect for the way he's fighting the war and doing it. it it's, an, it's just an incredible uh, mindset that they have towards it. And I, don't, I think we can learn a lot from them as a people, uh, which is another reason that I'm just so, like, obsessed with the vietnam story uh, so I think, I think i think in the end when you see jack's experiences when he was there and he got to visit people and and actually run into soldiers that were still around from the war and how they kind of had a mutual respect and they saluting each other as an example would be like unheard of in america if we saw somebody that we fought against you know 50 years ago we'd be like you know move on over right. there it's more like respect to your point it's very much respect but it's also humility Humility and respect, I think, is very important. Yeah, and the, the toughness of some of those guys, like there, there was uh, I forget his name, one of the uh, survivors from the north, who was he was shot in the leg. His legs were shot up, and he said, "I." He kept running, like with his legs shot up, and I was like, "He said I didn't have time to feel the pain. When I stop, I feel the pain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? yes. I get, I can understand adrenaline and everything, but." No, if you shot me in the leg, I'd lay down and say, okay, <laughs> you win. Take me out the prisoner of war. <laughs> I would not be running. Anyway, great people. Now, coffee. How the hell does coffee tie into all this? <laughs> so, a little bit about the coffee. So, the, the coffee company was called CycleRider3Expresso.com. Uh, it really was created, uh, and I actually created a coffee per book. So for the seven books that are coming out in the next few years, there is a coffee named after them. So there is a Sunrise in Saigon version uh, as well. And again, the, the whole point of the coffee sales and the book sales is really the proceeds will be going to helmets for kids in Vietnam to raise money. I get it. Uh, now, are you a big uh, coffee fan? Are you, I mean, is that... Or, yeah. or, 
Oh yeah. oh yeah, yeah. I mean, look at my. I, I host a podcast somewhere to you on Saturdays called "Writers on Writers Over a Triple Espresso," and believe me, there's more than one triple espresso going on during that podcast. So, really? no, I'm a huge, I'm a huge espresso drinker as well. Now, is it is it a big part of the writing process with you? I mean, uh, yes. yes. You have to have a little caffeine. To me, I need a little bit more than normal, um, but it is part of it. Uh, but it's also more importantly, it's also become a friendship. A lot of writers that have come on my podcast. All their coffee drinkers, I ship you now. I give them free samples of coffee that come back and bought some because they realize it is for a good cause. Um, a lot of my technology um, people that I've worked with over the years are buying coffee from me because they know it's also going to a good cause as well. Right now, the, that bag you showed me before you threw, <laughs> is is that is that beans or it's already ground beans? Uh, I have everything from whole bean to ground to espresso. So whatever you like, I'll ship you a box. I've never, uh, I've got bags of beans. I don't, I don't have a, gr- uh, maybe I do. My wife doesn't want me to do it. She thinks I'll probably <laughs> hurt myself. Uh, but I'm curious about the beans. I have a couple somebody sent me a, a couple of bags of beans mm-hmm. recently. And I was I just like, I don't know what to do with them. I, I'm, I've always kept taking my coffee out of the can. Like, like a, like I can say, I'll, I'll show you one that's grinded. The, 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 this one actually comes also grinded as well for espresso. And I, I usually like that as well because I have a machine too. But sometimes I'm too lazy. I just want to throw the grinds in the French press and call it a day. So, Yeah. Um, now, you mentioned you edited the book. Did you work, did you work with a, uh, an out, an, another editor at all? Because I, I can't edit my own work. So I, I did the initial, you know, undyslexia edit version of her moment, but I did have five beta readers. I did have, uh, I did have a little bit of experience with editors to be, to be transparent. Uh, I had one editor that was in Europe that did not a very good job. I mean, it it really kind of attempted to change the story. I had another editor that didn't get the story. And I had one editor that clearly was a fifth grade English teacher who just bled all over it with red ink everywhere. But I asked them all one very important question. Did you actually get the story? Did you actually get the beginning and the end and the middle? And none of them did. They were too focused on, you know, the meticulousness of this. So I finally found a really great editor that was more of a development editor, not a line editor, and really said, okay, you need to tweak the story a little bit about this whole Jack and Lynn thing, right? Other than that, um, you know, that it went to the publisher. They did their own line editing and cleanup as well, and they did a wonderful job. Austin McCauley did a fantastic job getting the book ready uh, as well. But, yeah, I did the initial edit myself because I knew where I made mistakes. But by the time I got it out there to some people, some people got it, and other people just kind of, you know, kind of meticulously went at it the wrong way. Yeah. Um, so that's interesting because you talk about beta readers. Uh, now, how did you find? Because I have I've made the mistake of using people who have, I loved and people who love me and they were <laughs> friends, and I find I can't trust them. Uh, a, you know, it, it's a I can't trust them because they're going to be too nice. They're not going to be as honest as they. How did you find? How did you go about finding Facebook beta readers? Facebook groups and LinkedIn. Facebook groups. You just get on the authors groups. Jump in, say, hey, I'm an up-and-coming author. I've got a beta read. Could you mind reading? I'd also used to swap documents with people. So someone would say, hey, would you beta read for me? And I'll beta read for you. I didn't even know these people. So, and more importantly, I would pick people from overseas, like in Europe or Asia or South America, on purpose. And that way, they, I'd get their interpretation of the English language, and I would get their interpretation of their their thoughts of how they're writing English as well. But beta readers are very easy to come by, and you're right. Like, don't pick a friend. Don't pick a family member. Don't pick somebody who loves you or hates you. You want somebody who has no clue who you are when yeah. they're reading your work. 
Yeah, that's a challenge for me. Uh, and, and it was definitely a challenge. I have two books actually. One is actually finished, but I'm I'm not happy with it. I mean, because I I shared it with an editor who just came back, and it, I am too much of a control freak about my own story to say mm-hmm. that you can't tell me that's not important. I put that in there because it was important to me. Now that's where I'm getting to. Cause you said you asked them if they got the book. Now, what does that mean? Because to me, I, I'm, I don't even know how to kind of express this idea that I, I think you know, as a songwriter, if somebody doesn't get the intent that I put into the song, as long as they got something out of it that, that, that they found value in, I don't mm-hmm. care what, what meaning they took away from it. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you more concerned that they got what you intended to, to them to feel out of the book? Or did they not just get, did they feel nothing? I mean, a that- little bit of both, because I, I actually, to be honest with you, there, there's certain parts of the book I actually cry even today when I read it because there is some emotion. Uh, there's a lot of emotion in the book that Jack went through, and I could relate to Jack's, obviously, his experiences a little bit. But I wanted to see people reading this that didn't know me, that actually read the book or read the edit portion of it. And for them to come back going, I, I still don't get this whole water company, kids, and you know stuff yeah. like that. Okay, so that means their heart's not in the same direction, which is fine. But you ultimately are trying to get people to read your work that say, all right, I got the A to Z. I got a little confused with PQ and R and Z, but in the end of the day, I get where you're going with this. That's probably the best feedback you're hoping for. But I did have a few people that literally got lost on page 20. I said, Vietnam, never heard of it. What? You know, they were in their 20s. They were like young kids. But they, but some of the older people that read it all came away with, once I read it two or three times, I finally got where you're going with this. I I I laugh, but it really bothers me that people. Uh, I don't care how old they are. If they were fifteen and they say, "I don't," I never heard of Vietnam. That breaks my heart. But I it, I laugh because it reminded me on the on my morning show. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of my friends who's a comedian in in the UK, he uh, is trying to get John Hinckley on his show, and I'm like, "Well, John Hinckley is a grifter. You're trying to sell his music. You never even heard his music. The only reason he's getting famous is because he shot Reagan." Right. And and the a girl co- co-host, uh, she's about she's about 32. She was on one, and she said, mm-hmm. "President Reagan was shot. Was, was killed. He killed." I was like, "You never heard of." assassination town on, on Ronald Reagan. <laughs> I, I have to explain it. I felt bad, but it's not like she's stupid. It's like they're now teaching history or, or even, you know, I don't know. When I was in, in school, we learned about World War II. It wasn't that distant you know, history, but it bothers me that people don't know about this. Stuff. Well, it, it was interesting when that person made that comment because I, I asked, well, what don't you understand about Vietnam or what it is? And she's like, country, right? I'm like, yeah, good start. Okay. Now, telling her it was in Southeast Asia, she's like, Southeast Asia, is that? She was like, Japan? Is it? I'm like, wow, no geography skills. But yeah. the end of the day was it, the older people, the ones that really have some recollection, they have a cousin or relative or father that was over there. Um, you know, they all came back and said, wow, you really kind of took it in a much more positive light than I thought. Everyone thought this was going to be the, you know, the harshness of it. Is it not really? There's, there's a lot of good that comes out of life. And sometimes you just need to capture it on paper. Right. The healing part of, of Vietnam for America. I don't think we can ever heal from, from the wounds we inflicted on ourselves by being there and uh, without really understanding the mistakes that we made. And 
the uh, the changes that we went through that made gung ho kids who were heroes. They wanted to go. They they grew up worshiping the Greatest Generation and their victories in Europe, and they wanted to go serve their country. And they were gung ho. And mm-hmm. then somewhere in that shift, in a very few years, it came from being gung-ho and wanting to serve your country to baby killers and hated by your own people and and uh, villains, seen as villains. And that whole thing that screwed us up mentally, and we're still struggling with all that stuff, but we, we're not learning from it. We're not really sitting down to have conversations about it and examining it in the way post-traumatic nations really need to. And I think that's part of the sadness of, Oh, the young people, or I don't know that they were young, but whoever said I never heard of Vietnam. <laughs> well, well, people now are facing that, as you know, in our modern time with Afghanistan and Iraq and veterans coming back from the Gulf Wars and, and having ways of not, and even the younger generation still can't cope with that. It's going, what does it all mean? Well, none of us really know. I mean, we don't get, you know, there's the big picture is not the big picture anymore, right? It's all micro. But I think to your point about healing from Vietnam, I think that it became an impossible task because there wasn't the movement to want to heal. It was move on, not not stop and take inventory. It was like, okay, we have other problems. We have inflation. We've got Carter. We've got all these other things. But I think that today, it's it's you, you don't see that top of mind of helping veterans the way they should. And right. I know a lot of there's a lot of organizations out there doing great things for veterans, but they can do. I, you know, we can do a lot more for veterans that are coming back. Yeah, I play at the VA a lot. I perform at the VA a lot. Sometimes uh, it's uh, paid work. Sometimes I volunteer uh, mm-hmm. and put in some some and get to know these guys. Yes, and uh, I just don't think that we are even ready to kind of deal with healing because obviously, we, if we we learned the lessons from Vietnam, I don't think we would have been in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. I realized two thousand one and nine eleven, all that stuff was the reason they told us we were going there but i don't i still don't think we we needed to put boots on the ground mm-hmm. there ever and all that stuff that's a whole other political discussion but i don't <laughs> I, I don't think we would be getting involved in these wars because i always say and vietnam serves i talked about this with russia invading ukraine mm-hmm. the invading country never wins you can never win uh, uh people's uh, uh, win a country by force. You, you have to win it by their hearts and minds. And if their hearts and minds are not with you, mm-hmm. then the minute you pull out of there, it, you, you can't win. It's an unwinnable right. situation. You have to go for their hearts and minds right. and not you know, holding a gun to somebody's head to get them to do stuff. That seems to be a simple lesson uh, from all of it. And I don't think humanity, the whole world just doesn't get it (laughs) well they don't and well and if there's money involved which there was you know in the 60s and the 50s and the french were there and everyone so there was always money i have to tell you when my wife and i were in paris a few years ago and we went to the opera house i don't know if you've ever been to the paris opera house but in the lobby it has two giant gold tires in the lobby and you're like and you have to kind of stare at that going why is there two giant rubber tires in the lobby michelin and figure that in the 50s it was all about the rubber and then it was the oil and then it was the you know so when there's always money involved is where morality tends to kind of disappear yep you're absolutely right great stuff and you know what um i hope there's healing in your book Uh, lots of it good good that's that's a that's good and i appreciate all that you're doing and uh you know and being a given person now i 
I hate to leave on a, like too heavy a note, but uh, this, I, do you feel like you make a difference? Yes. Yes, I do. When I, I recently got a picture for some kids in Vietnam that are wearing the helmets. Uh, actually, I'll show you the, uh, I'll show you quickly. So these kids are wearing these helmets with my logo on it, of course. Um, there's over 150 of them now. I've, I've raised enough money selling coffee so far to make 150 of these helmets. And I got a picture recently from some kids in Vietnam. They're actually wearing it and cycling with it. So that really made me feel like, okay, I'm really doing the right thing because not only is my money going to good use, but to see the kids appreciate it was really great. So my goal is that through the book sales and coffee sales to at least try to have a thousand helmets by the end of next year. Wow, that's that good for you, man. Good. I'm glad you know I've, I'm. You're an inspiration because I. I struggle with that. Like how much, how much good do I really do in the world? And, and, all, and so it's great to see. And actually, you know what, you have the right idea about uh, using capitalism for, for good rather than uh, just a greed, greedy purpose. So I, I appreciate that. Now, how do you, how do you, decide which 150 kids get those helmets uh, actually it's it, it, well i don't oh, think that a, a lottery no no, no no the organization does the helmets for kids they they have different cities they go to and they the story as you probably mentioned earlier was that when president clinton was there in 2000 he was the founder of of this along with other people um and then of course there's members that have run with it ever since but they've they've made over a million helmets since 2000 they've distributed them in india thailand laos and of course vietnam so there's always a demand and uh, I'm, this project right now is kind of helping us a, a school uh, within nor northern Vietnam as well. And then the next batch will be for a school in southern Vietnam as well. But the nice thing is that it is helping. It is helping to keep kids safe. And to see kids smile, see on their faces going, hey, I now have something safe when I'm riding my bike. That That's a pretty good feeling to have. Very cool stuff. I, I appreciate getting to know you. Listen, uh, I know the next book isn't due out for a couple of months, right? Uh, but... <laughs> Come back when the next book, uh, when you're ready to release it, uh, and we'll, let's have another conversation. I, I, I appreciated this uh, a lot, and I wish you great success with the book. Uh, you, people can get the book at CycleWriterLLC.com. The formal, the formal launch will be 12-12, so December 12th is when the book will be coming out. Uh, uh, there's going to be a pre-launch around November the 30th, and that will be available on CycleWriterLLC.com as well. But yes, the book is actually almost ready to come out. Um, it's at the printers now. And then we're going to have an ebook. We'll have an audio book uh, released in December as well on Audible. Um, but yes, uh, for all information, they can go to psychowriterllc.com. Who's doing the reading? You or do you? No, no, no. Not my, not my operatic voice. No, I have somebody else. Yeah, your but... voice sounds fine. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, no, that's always an issue with me. I would want to read, read my own book. I definitely would. <laughs> um and and the podcast is uh it you record now do you do it recorded or do you uh, do it live like this do it live like you do do it live it's on saturdays at uh, 10 a.m pacific called writers on writers over triple espresso it's up on youtube and i have writers coming on every week that talk about their books and their podcasts and their influence and things they're into and obviously and even new movies that they're working on as well very cool a lot of them working on movies because i know a lot of them want to Yes, a lot of some people have got their got their options picked up. Um, some are actually working with Netflix and Hulu, and it's interesting to hear their their story from how they wrote 
to how the book was picked up and then now kind of going into the production side of things. Uh, are you um, learning anything about getting your book in, made into a film? Or, obviously, you have to, in the back, even if you say no, I'm going to think you're lying to me. No, no, I do. Uh, I have, there's a trailer coming. I have a, I have a PR firm that's putting a nice movie trailer together and are circulating it out here in L.A. as well. And I, I do hope that it does get picked up. But if not, it's okay. I'm just happy with the book and happy it's doing some good. Yeah, I do think it would make a good book, just the story of it. And I do think uh, there's a whole lot of a, a whole lot of good that can come out of a movie like this, you know. Because let's let's face it, um, only a very small pop, uh, percentage of the population are readers these days, but um, compared to people who will watch a movie, yeah. and the, uh, the the messages of the book, the positive messages of the book, the historical references in the book. All good things for humanity, good things for people. So I hope I hope it does get made into a movie. So uh, listen, uh, I will uh, continue to support you and and, to, and send people. Now there's two different websites. Before we go, right? CycleWriterLLC.com is for the book, but then there's a coffee website. What's that? CycleWriter the number three Expresso.com. Expresso the number three Expresso.com. Very cool. I'll put that in the description too. I wasn't aware of that until just tonight. But listen, Patrick, I, I thank you for being here. I wish you great success. Please do come back, and uh, whether it's a, like a month and a half or whatever, when you're ready, <laughs> the book's ready. I'd love uh, to come back. Thank you, Mind Dog. It's great to meet you, and thanks for having me on today. So my pleasure. Bye for now. Have a great night. Bye for now. Patrick Greenwood, folks. Um, good stuff. Good stuff. Positive stories. Uh, uplifting stories. Story of uh, a lot of takeaways for me. The added the attitude of gratitude. The idea that you know what um, I have a lot to be thankful for, and noticing that people don't, and wanting to make a difference. Very cool stuff. Very cool stuff, and something I appreciate a lot. Um, the cycling. I loved riding a bike when I was a kid. I can't, uh, it's too complicated for me now to go to a bike store and kind of, uh, you know, get measured up for a bike. What's the right kind of bike for me? And where, what's the terrain for you? And all that kind of stuff. And, and I don't want to go 100 miles an hour. I do like riding a bike. I have to admit, I do. I still, on occasion, have ridden a bike around town here just for the fun of it. But I, I'm a slow rider. I'm not a racer, but I do appreciate all that stuff. And and he, he turned me around on the helmet stuff too. I get I get the helmet thing now. So good good conversation. I'd love to know what you think about it. Write to, write to me at info at minddogtv.com. Info at minddogtv.com. I'll be with you for coffee with the dog tomorrow. Still no guests. I'm not uh, I'm not booking any guests on the 8 a.m. show uh, for the time being, because um, you know the show used to start at nine. Now it's not, I'm starting at eight because I'm working on some side projects that are uh, occupying my day. I need to be out of the house by nine. So uh, until that get resolved, gets resolved, which will probably be in about two weeks or so. I keep saying two weeks, like uh, I'm working on my uh, infrastructure plan or my healthcare plan. About two weeks. Um, uh, so that'll be resolved soon. Anyway, catch me tomorrow morning for Coffee with the Dog. No guests, just me. Have a great night. Thanks for coming. Bye for now.
listen to me, listen to me now. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me now. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me now. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me now.